Hello friends and welcome to my podcast, Coffee and Books. This is your host, Scott. Hope all of you are doing well today. I promise this episode will be a little bit longer than my last episode, which was about Maxwell Coffee. If you haven't checked it out, you should definitely check that one out, because today we're going to go over one of my favorite books that is going to detail the history of coffee. Now, this is just going to be a basic, basic touching on the surface of coffee's history, and I highly encourage you, if you're interested, to look up all of these topics individually or generally check out this book. This book is called Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World. Uh, it's by Mark Pendergrast. Uh, it was published initially in 1999, so the book is a little dated, but I got it from the Nashville Public Library. And, of course, I highly recommend it because I have yet to see such a comprehensive research done on the history of coffee. One of my favorite, obviously, products that I like to drink every day. And so, of course, I did not know a lot about the coffee industry before I read this book. I have to admit that this was an educational pursuit for me as well as for you listeners. Definitely learned a lot about the violent and climatic history, the boom and rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall of the coffee bean. Did not realize that it was the second most exported commodity on earth. But we're going to get into it now, so let's learn. Yay. Okay. So, before we begin, I just want to say one more thing. Uh, If I am wrong about anything, I had just quickly summarized and made notes. So, if there needs to be any corrections, please let me know. Alright. So, where were we? Ah, yes. Coffee was discovered in the Ethiopia and in a country known as Yemen. Uh, so Ethiopia and Yemen have a closely united history where Ethiopia actually invaded the country of Yemen. Uh, this is what brought the, the world of coffee to eventually the Muslim world, which was eventually expanded into the trade with the West, which is what eventually brought it here to our present day. So to summarize, not just kidding, that's the, basically where it started, though, Ethiopia. You don't think of Ethiopia as the place where coffee comes from because it comes from pretty much everywhere on pretty much every continent, Uh, but coffee can pretty much start it out in Ethiopia. In fact, there's a very famous story of where a goat shepherd uh, had some goats that were munching on some berries and then became very frisky and started moving around really radically and he thought they were poisoned, but it turns out they just got a caffeine high from eating too many berries. So after witnessing his goats eat this, he decided to eat this, and that's what eventually made him, well, kind of well-known, and that's where we got coffee from. And like I said, it eventually moved into the Yemen, where it became and kind of manufactured and sold into the Muslim world. Okay, so continuing what I was saying, coffee, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the most valuable exported legal commodities on Earth. It's the second most after oil, It's grown in a large variety of places, such as, like I said, Africa, South America, Asia. Um, Some of the more recent highlights, uh, Brazil makes some well-known coffee. Uh, You know, of course, we have Colombia, Guatemala, uh, anything from Vietnam makes some really good high-quality coffee. Indonesia, uh, of course, you know, places near the equator are probably the best places and mountainous regions on Earth provide some of the best high-quality coffee. Uh, So it provides a livelihood for over 20 million human beings on the planet of some sort or another. 
Uh, it's a very labor-intensive crop, and it takes years to grow and pick. Uh, a typical tree takes about four to five years to plant and produce. So at any point in time, if the climate's bad or not favorable, like a drought or a frost or something that would hurt the plant, it can destroy it. So this is one reason why coffee goes up and down so much in price over the years. Um, and in Western countries, such as the USA, typically spend half a day's uh, third world pay for a good cup of coffee. Something I thought that was interesting. When you go to Starbucks or a place like Starbucks and you pay about $2, that is literally a third, if not maybe closer to a half now, of what a, a poor third world country would actually make and use uh, for a day. So remember, when you're buying that cup of coffee, you have to realize how much labor and intensity goes into it. Okay, so where was I? So laborers earn an average of $3 a day. And how we judge coffee quality. So coffee quality is based into four different categories. So they are aroma, the body, acidity, and flavor. So aroma is kind of obvious, but for those of you who want a more detailed explanation, how we, one way we tell coffee is good is based on the smell. If a coffee has a very strong smell, you can know it's a good quality coffee. Um, the body, like meaning like the smoothness of the coffee. So when you make it, uh, does it have a very smooth taste to it or is it kind of like a bitter taste to it? Um, acidity, so of course one way of determining it is you know, when the bean is manufactured or produced, you can tell it based on how much acidity it has, if it's good or bad quality. And of course, lastly, the most important is the flavor. When we actually sample and taste coffee, what are we tasting? Is this something that it provides good quality taste? Because you can have all the other things, a good quality smell, a body, and acidity, but if the flavor is not conducive to what people like, people aren't going to buy it. So all these are very important. Okay, so... Uh, so according to folklore, like I said, the goat is what discovered the coffee. Um, and of course, that's what led to us kind of manufacturing and using it today. So that was approximately right after about 2,000 years ago. So we have to think about in the early, uh, early times of AD or, BC, or you know, CE, Common Era, for those of you who use that. Uh, that was around the time when it spread. Uh, okay, so... It is believed that, like I said, coffee develops in climates without winter. So uh, an unusual frost would, like I said, destroy it. But uh, one of the interesting things to note is that caffeine is a side effect from, you know, the coffee tree. And it's believed that the coffee tree, based on science, from what scientists understand, developed caffeine as a way of discouraging animals to not eat it. Of course, man, being the way he is, decided this is something that they actually like. And it's, you know, considered a drug, but a drug that occurs natural in the environment and is therefore relatively easy to come across. Okay, so, Brazil and many countries in coffee-producing areas of the world are often exploited. Now, this is the part where it gets sad. Unfortunately, the West, and in particular the United States and other countries, have had a history of exploiting countries for the profit of the coffee bean. Uh, for example, it's not just Brazil, but Brazil is one of the most commonly used examples because Brazil is one of the largest countries on the earth. It's, I believe, the fifth largest country uh, based on land alone and has multitudes of rainforests and other such uh, land that can be used. But unfortunately, a lot of this land was used for the production of you know, farming, you know, sugar, molasses, and coffee. 
And while this became Brazil's main export, coffee, it was not exactly the best crop which we'll find to export, mainly because the price varied so much. It went up and down and could mean you become a millionaire overnight and be penniless by the next day. That's how much the coffee industry kind of varies. But the reason why Brazil was hardest hit was an example I'm going to use. It's called the Vorization Scheme. Basically, Brazil mass-produced beans and did not sell them in order to drive up demand. And they would also have coffee in store in case anything happened. You know, like, like I said, there's a lot that could happen. Earthquakes, you know, floods, anything that damages a coffee crop, which is very sensitive. You know, they need to have bags in reserve just in case. Because, like I said, it takes five years to grow the crop. So if all your crops are wiped out, you got to wait five years. So it's kind of a big deal. So the idea behind this was that Brazil made millions and millions upon millions of bags and was had a dictator in control who was exporting the coffee business and made it, you know, very profitable. But, of course, eventually the market was flooded with beans and there was no longer a need for this. And as a result, Brazil turned to burning and destroying land and beans that were over-manufactured. And so the process kind of continues to this very day. But essentially what it comes down to is countries in South America that often have a surplus of beans often lead to people abandoning those farms, plots of land. And then it creates a demand, of course, when there's no longer any beans or manufacturers. And so it re- results in people going back and replanting. And the cycle continues you know, in circles every five years to ten years or so. But, it, of course, the U.S. is responsible, like I said, too. Um, countries during the Cold War we supported often had dictatorships, primarily because we did not want communist-run countries, of course which led to uh, very, very, very extreme situations. And like I said, Colombia, Guatemala, um, El Salvador, uh, Costa Rica, Haiti, all places all around the world uh, eventually had some form or another of corruption from the coffee business. And of course, that's not even including Africa. You know, and all the countries there, you know, places like, like I said, not just Ethiopia and Sudan and of course, you know, Uganda, and uh, Burgundy, you know, these countries too often faced many civil wars over a dramatic period of time, and it was all in the favor of, you know, pretty much companies exploiting it. You know, companies like United Fruit Company, which were in Guatemala, which, you know, exported, uh, exploited the locals. Okay, so, like I said, long, long, long history of U.S. and the CIA doing that, of course. Uh, but all this is common knowledge now, and this was a long, long time ago, you know. So this isn't something that we can say is recent, but we can say we still are feeling the effects from, you know, South American countries that have been impacted by this. Okay, so how do we stop this? Uh, well, there's different methods we'll get into in a minute here, but basically there are ways of fighting and making sure that when you do spend money on a cup of coffee that you're ethically producing it and it's not going into someone who's profiting off of someone who's making pennies a day or you're not profiting off of someone who's using it to make his make himself rich and not the people so we'll get back to that in a second but coffee has always had a long long history of being vilified and blamed for numerous societal problems kings and leaders political leaders and even the catholic church tried to ban it 
Of course, it was eventually a pope who said that, you know, this is so good, we have to drink this too. Uh, but eventually led to, every few years, you'll see studies on caffeine, in particular coffee, that show why it's either healthy or not healthy for us to drink. Now, I think it's just like anything else. You drink it in moderation, you're probably okay. But if you drink excessive amounts of caffeine, you're probably not going to be better off. And yes, it's a drug, and it can lead to withdrawals and problems and even, you know, some more serious effects. You know, it can affect people with heart issues already. You know, it can potentially, you know, cause your, like, if you have paranoia already to make that worse, or it can cause you to have more depressive behaviors if you don't get it. So there is such a thing as, you know, being a coffee addict, and I'm not saying that, you know, we don't need to treat coffee as an addiction, but we do need to understand that it is a mild addiction. You know, a lot of, if you don't drink excessive amounts of it, you can usually quit coffee pretty easily or switch to decaffeinated blend, which is very important, of course, for, uh, you know, keeping and supporting the coffee business alive, if you want. But the reason why the coffee industry is so important is it's because it's one of the last places on earth where people can pretty much socialize uh, freely and speak their thoughts, forms, and ideas. That's why it was such a powerful place in the first place. You know, like there's a lot of bars out there, but there's a lot more coffee shops. So just keep that in mind. And of course, you know, if you're Starbucks, you're pretty much already on every corner. Okay, so, like I said, there are different ways of supporting, uh, you know, the coffee. But the big reason why we drink it so much today is because there are reasons like globalization that make coffee popular everywhere. Uh, Army veterans often drink coffee. Uh, another interesting thing is the, the blend that we like might be different than the blend you like in another country. For instance, uh, you know, if you're in Italy, you might like a darker roast or an espresso. If you're in France, you might like it with hickory. If you're in, you know, a country like, you know, England, you might like it, you know, but you might also like tea and other beverages as well. Or maybe, you know, you're used to drinking it from Starbucks and you're used to their either dark roast or extremely blonde or light, lighter roasts. So it just depends on what you want, and just because one person drinks it one way and one person drinks it another doesn't make it wrong. But that is one fascinating aspect to me, is that countries like, for instance, in Europe, like Denmark and Nordic countries often drink quite a bit of coffee, more than the amount of coffee that us Americans drink. But like I said, different brands, different shops, they influence everyone, different styles. Uh, but the big reason why we have such uniformity today, you can say, would be because of Starbucks and places like Dunkin' Donuts, which made it r routine. And when you think about dipping a donut in coffee, that's why Dunkin' Donuts got, you know, its name. So it does have quite a bit of stuff like that. And, uh, of course, like I said, we can get into, you know, the price, uh, commodity and exchange that happened in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, but... Well, another fascinating part that I thought was crazy was that when coffee, for instance, went up a few cents in price, uh, people would lose their heads and say they would never drink it again, or, you know, it was uh, other countries exploiting us for drinking, you know, their drinks or beverages, and, you know, like, just because we had to pay 10 cents a, a cup of coffee instead of five, the world was going to end. I just thought that process was fascinating, that every few years or every few decades, there's always some person who's an anti-coffee crusader, but usually ends up being converted to drinking coffee anyway. 
Okay, so obviously the two biggest blends you might see are Arabica and Robusta blends. Uh, Robusta is the type of blend that's going to be more common. Um, it's cheaper. It's usually made to make instant coffees. This was, for instance, where Brazil specializes in. Uh, a place like Guatemala with more of the highlands might kind of specialize in more of the high-quality coffee beans. Uh, some places specialize in both. Uh, some places, like you know, Kenya, specialize specifically in the high-quality stuff. Um, and different countries produce from different parts of the world. So, like, if you have a high-quality product in Kenya, probably someone from Japan is going to want to buy that product. Um, but if you have a place less like uh, the United States where they need mass production of coffee, they might mix the coffees together or they might focus solely on Robusta just because it's cheaper. Uh, but this led to, of course, part of the reason why we understand coffee today is that the, the coffee at home industry is different than the specialty coffees you get at a store. The coffee at home industry is cheaper. That's why when you go to a store or a grocery store or pretty much any store that sells those vacuum packaged containers, uh, they're lower quality, but it's easy to make, you know, having a dripping pot or a percolator or just a different way of brewing coffee at home. Uh, this is for the convenience, and that's why those beans are ground up and are usually cheaper. Unfortunately, this usually impacts the quality, so that's why house quality coffee is not as good as if you buy coffee at an actual store where it's freshly ground and made and so specialty stores kind of take have taken over of course but uh you know everyone from pete's coffee is where the industry kind of started to of course everything from green mountain coffee to uh you know you name it there's always someone out there producing it but that's why i recommend producing and getting whole beans because when you grind them fresh it tastes a lot better even if it is vacuum sealed, it doesn't make it any better. And sometimes, you know, if there's a leak or anything in there, it can lead to a bad quality product. So might as well get yourself a crusher to make your own blend at home. But if you can't do that, going to the store is always the best bet. Okay, so, uh, so there's different ways to support, like I said, charities that basically try to make fair trade or, you know, make it so that it's easier to, you know, purchase coffee ethically. I will say that there's not really a uniform way of supporting charities in the coffee industry right now. Uh, the most common method would be fair trade, as we kind of maybe discussed a little bit before. But fair trade coffee basically has in mind that when you purchase a bag of coffee, you might pay a little bit more in money for that bag of beans, but that money is actually going towards the farmer. Um, they're getting a, a better, or if not a standard, of what those beans would be worth at the time of production. And that means that they can take that money home to them and feed their families. And instead of living on something like $3 a day, they might actually make a little bit more money that way. Uh, so that's why fair trade is important. Uh, of course, there are other types of uh, charities that try to bring education and help people not rely solely on this one source for income. Um, so you can also buy eco-friendly uh, made coffee. So eco-friendly, of course, is manufactured using green methods and technology. Uh, this is really important because the process of making coffee and roasting it all the way to delivering it in the United States and not having it in some kind of plastic-made bag is kind of hard to do um, from start to finish. So 
to have something that's completely 100% eco-friendly from the process of roasting it to, you know, using, uh, you know, labor and, you know, the human cost of that, you know, there's a, there's a big deal with trying to make it eco-friendly. So, uh, you know, oftentimes the waste product of coffee is, you know, causes pollution in rivers and, you know, damages the ocean and other places too. So it's very important to buy eco-friendly coffee. Um, of course, another thing you can do is maybe buy organic-made coffee. Another important factor is paying attention to what pesticides are used. So, of course, as you know, anyone who eats organic products already knows this, but, you know, pesticides are pretty bad and not very healthy. Um, now, we typically wash our produce in the United States when getting it, so therefore, you know, you're trying to wash all the chemical residue off. But in coffee beans, uh, you know, when you're roasting, the process usually, you know, for the most part, takes care of most of the chemicals and stuff that, uh, you know, while it's being roasted in the, uh, you know, uh, sorry, while coffee is being roasted, it usually destroys the chemicals that are like pesticides. But unfortunately, this doesn't protect the farmers. So one thing in mind is if you buy organic made coffee, they're not using those pesticides, uh, you know, when they're you know, locally sourcing the bean, and therefore, you know, the farmer or, you know, picker isn't going to be, you know, covered in pesticides and spray, and, you know, won't, you know, get sick, hopefully, that way. Lastly, there's shade-grown coffee, which is usually produced in tropical rainforests and is bird-friendly. So, again, it's eco-friendly, but more importantly, this type of uh, specialty is usually used to bring resources together to make people aware of what's going on in the Amazon rainforest. Um, of course, like I said, countries like Brazil use the slash and burn method, uh, you know, in South America, which often leads to the destruction of the rainforest and, you know, different species. So the shade-grown coffee basically is coffee that's grown under the shades of uh, plants and trees in the wild and wilderness. Um, you know, with these natural fertilizers and, you know, man-made products, it usually leads to a healthier crop and less destruction of the rainforest. So all that's really important. And of course, making the perfect cup of coffee is important for you as well. Um, I hope to hear from all of you in the future regarding this episode. This is, again, one of my favorite episodes to make so far. Um, I'm going to read a book on fiction next. It's going to be The History of Pompeii. Um, I have a coffee delivery coming probably May 3rd or 4th, which is going to be uh, from Indonesia, so that's going to be pretty cool to talk about. Um, And I would love to hear from you if you run a coffee shop or if you are in a coffee shop in another part of the world. Please let me know. All right. I'll talk to you later. Uh, Please reach me on here on the Anchor Podcast or please reach out to me on my email. And uh, thanks again for sharing and have a good day.